Shalom. Welcome to the Crimson Thread. I'm John Burns, pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship in the Boulder, Longmont area of Northern Colorado. This teaching was recorded in a live Midrashic setting. We've edited it for clarity, but you may notice some jumps where we've taken out inaudible comments and sidetracks. Enjoy the study. What I advertised that I was going to do, and I am in fact going to do, is for the next uh, probably five or six weeks we will, te- we will do the book of Ephesians, but I wanted to do it in the perspective of the kingdom parables and the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And as I said on uh, Shabbat, there are seven kingdom parables, there are seven pastoral letters by Paul, which is letters to organizations as opposed to letters to people. In other words, you've got Timothy and Titus and Philemon, which are letters to people. And then you've got you know, Colossians, Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, and so forth, which are letters to organizations or pastoral letters. And then, of course, Yeshua has letters to seven separate churches in the book of Revelation. I had always heard that the three sets of seven were related. I looked it up with respect to the parables and the letters in Revelation, and I did a teaching on that several weeks ago, and, and the, the website outline I got is it's heraldmag.org, and Herald Mag is an old church magazine of some kind from the turn of the 20th century, and somebody in there had written an article about the relationship between the kingdom parables and the letters to the churches, and that's where I sort of kicked off from. If you take it a step further, you then have the seven pastoral epistles of Paul, and I looked at Ephesians and compared them to the parable of the sower and the letter to the Ephesians in Revelation, and find that they have a lot of correspondence. So what I'm assuming here is that Paul's seven pastoral letters, the seven kingdom parables, and then the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation all deal with the same subject sequentially. So the first one is obviously in Revelation is the letter to the church at Ephesus, which takes us to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which takes us to the parable of the sower in the kingdom parables. So anyway, we start with Yeshua's letter in Revelation, seven letters. The first one of those is Ephesus. Going then to the seven kingdom parables, the first one of those is the parable of the sower. And then, of course, Paul makes it easy for us because he has a letter that's titled Ephesians. So my assumption here is that all of those are related, and as as I went through them, there's no question in my mind. The other thing that I find fascinating is these were all given at different times. The parables were given before the death of Yeshua. Paul's letters were written before the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And then you have Revelation, which is Yeshua's letter via John, which most sources that I have read place at about 90 AD. So that would have been after the destruction of the temple. Now the last one, the dating of Revelation, is not solid. That's simply the opinion of most 
of the people that I know of. First thing to understand is if the same subject is repeated three times in the Bible, it must be important. So Yeshua gave it, Paul gave it, and then Yeshua gave it again. And if my assertion is correct, and if I didn't think it was, I wouldn't say it, that these are all speaking about the same thing, then the subject that they're speaking about must be important because it is repeated three times. In other words, the, the Bible doesn't waste bandwidth. Typically, the Bible is fairly terse, especially the Torah. So if you have this much ink on that subject, it must be important. So let's start with the kingdom parables. And I've said most of this before to most of the people here. We've got some new folks. The kingdom parables start in Matthew 13. And they are there in a wad, all seven of them. And what's the event that switches Yeshua from speaking in plain language into parable? He's going, going around Israel, healing people and casting out demons and all this stuff. And the Pharisees accuse him of doing that by the power of Beelzebub, or Satan. After that, he switches from plain speak into code speak. He goes into parables. And as I've said before, parables are designed not to be understood. They are designed to tell the truth in a way that the people who are listening to it on the spot will not understand it. And as I've said before, if an Old Testament prophet comes into your town and he starts speaking in parables, you're in trouble. Because you're on your way into exile. So what God does is he sends prophets into Israel and so forth. They start by speaking clearly. They typically get ignored or stoned or thrown into prison or beaten or whatever. Then they continue to speak in parables. And you remember the, the classic cases, of course, Isaiah, where Isaiah's commission is from God. The heart of this people have grown dull. Keep on speaking so that they will not understand. So the idea there is what God is doing with a prophet who is speaking in parables is he is positioning scripture so that people in exile can go back and read it and figure out why they're there and what they needed to come back. So as we read scripture that for a long time was closed and now seems to be opening up, it's my hope and my prayer that this current exile may be coming to a close. Which is to say, as we understand more and more about what's going on, and these things go, and we go, you know, go back to Deuteronomy, the end of Deuteronomy, you go back to the Apocalypse in Leviticus, uh, you go back to some of the prophets and you start seeing, oh, these messages were positioned so the people who heard them did not understand, but they are starting to be understood by us, which, as I say, may be a sign that the exile is coming to an end. So the reason that the prophet speaks in code, which is to say parables, is so that his message is in fact of no use to the people who hear it because their exile has been decreed. And some, what, 30 or 40 years after Yeshua's crucifixion and after he has spoken these parables, Israel goes back into exile, where they stay for 2,000 years. And they are now starting to come back, started, the exile started to return back in 1948. Given that John's letter is written after the destruction of the temple and after the scattering of Israel into exile, 
I am going to assert that that's the clearest one of the three because the people have been scattered. They, they seem to be, and, and they aren't all that clear. Paul is in the middle. And again, one of my beliefs and assertion is Paul is the apostle of the exile. And one of the things that happens in, in Scripture, and you see it in Isaiah chapter 29, is there's a process of exile. And we've talked about this before. And what happens is God removes prophets, he removes seers, and he closes the book. And that's why in exile you can have everybody reading the same version of the Bible in King James, which is Jesus' own words, right? And everybody reads the same version of the Bible and you get 10,000 different doctrines. And my suggestion there is that you're dealing with a closed book. So Paul is hard to understand. C.S. Lewis, I think it was, said, you know, with all Paul's many talents, why couldn't God have given him the talent of clear exposition? And, and, and I'm going to suggest to you that that's deliberate. That God chose Paul because A, he's brilliant, and B, he can't write a clear sentence. So he writes all this stuff which is true, but he writes it in ways that is very difficult to understand. And, and you know, we're still fighting over what the letters of the Romans or the letter of the Galatians means. And you get half a dozen different denominations and they've got half a dozen different ideas of what that means. And I'm suggesting that's, that's on purpose. We'll start with the parable of the sower. So I'm now in Matthew 13. That same day, Yeshua went out of the house. Okay, it's been a while since I've taught the kingdom parables. These are very tightly structured. And there is a structure to them and you have him going out of the house, into the house, out of the house, into the house. And what that tells you is who he's speaking to and who his audience is and whether the words he is speaking are intended to be understood. So he goes out of the house and so he's speaking to the multitude and he's speaking in a way that will not be understood. Later on, he's going to go into the house with his disciples and there he's going to give them their explanation privately, not for public understanding. So you have this into the house, out of the house, and you have several other structural elements in the kingdom parable. I'm not going to go through them all, but it's important to understand that same day Yeshua went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Of course, the sea typically in Bible speak is the nations. This happens probably to be the Sea of Galilee, so it isn't the Mediterranean, but it's described here in this translation of the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat. And again, the metaphor in the New Testament is boats and fishermen. The metaphor in the Old Testament is shepherds. And you have a very definite shift in metaphor from Old Testament to New Testament, or Tanakh to the apostolic scriptures. And in the Tanakh, it's shepherds. In the apostolic scriptures, it is fishermen and boats. And of course, Typically speaking, in order to get to the nations, you've got to take a boat. So that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. Since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. 
Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And, and I'm not going to go into a long explanation of the parable of the sower. I'm sure most of you could probably teach that better than I can. The thing we're dealing with here, though, that is important is seed. And, of course, later on in this parable, seeds are defined as the Word of God. So we're talking about the Word of God here. And we're talking about the care of the Word of God at whose hands? The soil. And who's the soil? People. People. So we're talking about the Word of God and the care and feeding of the Word of God by people. So what you have then is good seed falls on various kinds of soil, which are various kinds of people, and depending on what the soil does with the seed, you then either get a crop or you get crop failure, or variations in between. So what we're talking about is the Word of God and the care of the Word of God. Now, the other thing to see here and I think Yeshua threw this in just to sort of point us and nail us to the letters to the seven churches in Revelation is this formula, he who has ears, let him hear. Because we're going to see that again in Revelation. So I'm suggesting to you that this is you know, one of those little sticky notes that Yeshua stuck on this and said, all right, listen to this. And then when you see the letter that John's going to write some 30 or 40 years later, that gives you a clue to come back here. It, it, it's a, like a sticky note on the thing, just sort of tag you. And we'll talk about what that means in a minute, who hasn't ever let him hear. Now let's go from there over to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And again, I'm not going to reteach Revelation, but the, the stars are the angels of the churches and the lampstands are the churches. And, and that's all defined back in Revelation 1, verse 2. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Okay, so what does an apostle do? Spreads the word of God. In fact, the word, he, he gathers people, but the purpose is he gathers them into the kingdom and the apostles typically taught the word of God. So what I'm suggesting to you here is you have people who are going out carrying bad seed. In other words, he says, you've got these guys that say they're apostles, but they're not. Well, how do you know they're not? What's the only test that you would have to know whether an apostle is a good one or not? You know, what word's he spreading? are the things this guy says in accordance with all the rest of Scripture. And what, what Ephesus does, and what they're really, 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 really good at, is looking at Scripture, hearing these apostles and saying, you guys aren't the real deal. The Ephesians were good Bereans, there you go. So these folks are really good at and pride themselves on their knowledge of scripture and their knowledge of doctrine. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. So not only are they contending for 
the purity of the word and the purity of doctrine, they are tireless. They're bulldogs. Nevertheless, or in my, this translation, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. Now, if you are a student of the word, and if the word is really, 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 really important to you, what would you say the greatest commandment is? Love God and love your neighbor. So for Yeshua to say you have lost your first love is a major hit. In other words, you've gotten really good at scripture, you've gotten really good at, good at discerning false doctrine, you've gotten really good at picking up on people who are trying to lead you astray, but in that process you've lost the point of the exercise. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now remember, he introduced himself in this letter as the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who are the angels of the church, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, which are the churches. And he says, if you don't repent, I am going to remove your lampstand. Now there's two things, two problems with that, or, or two things that that could mean. It can either mean you will cease to be a church. In other words, I will take your lampstand from out of the candelabra, if you will, and that's going to be gone. That's thing one, possibility. Thing two possibility is as we go on in Revelation, one of the things that's going to happen is there's going to be a plague of darkness, just like there was in Egypt. And remember in the plague of darkness in Egypt, it says that the Israelites had light in all their dwellings. All the Egyptians were in darkness, but the Israelites had light. So for Yeshua at the beginning of the book of Revelation to say, if you don't repent, I'm going to take your lampstand. That could either be you're going to cease to be a church, or it could be you're going to go through the plague of darkness in the dark, just like everybody else. In neither case is it good. And in fact, that church no longer exists. Of the seven churches in, in Revelation, two of them still exist. The other five are gone. Smyrna and Philadelphia still exist. I am relying on the scholarship of a gentleman by the name of Chuck Missler, who has gone through this and, and has extensive notes on what became of all the churches and the and the the geographical and historical background of each of the cities and so forth. And one of the things that he says in, as part of that study is that those two churches are still there, the others are gone. I am trusting in his scholarship, and his scholarship is typically trustworthy, so I'm com comfortable doing that. You don't have to be comfortable doing that. You may certainly check that assertion if you like. Verse 6, yet this you have. So now he is saying, I know your works. Here's the good stuff. Nevertheless, here's the bad stuff. And now he's going back and giving them another stroke on the, on the tummy, right? Yet this you have. In other words, I've, I've said good, bad, now I'm going to say something good about you again. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there's that formula, he, or, he who has an ear, let him hear. 
To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, why is granting to eat of the tree of life an appropriate reward for this church? How many trees were in the garden? Two. And one is the tree of life. What's the other one? Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. These guys are good at knowledge. They have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the thing that they're good at. They're really good at reading scripture. They're really good at understanding. They're really good at applying scripture to people who come in and all that kind of stuff. The thing that they need is not the tree of knowledge. They need the tree of life. So giving them to eat of the tree of life is an appropriate reward for those who repent. Now, he who has an ear, let him hear, which shows up in both places. That goes back several places in scripture. Yeah, Psalm 115. And I'll pick it up in verse 4. So Psalm 115, verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So if you are involved with idols, you become like the idol that you are worshiping. And the phrase that has sort of carried forward in the scripture is, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear. And what that's a code word for is A, idol worshipers, or B, people with hard hearts. And so when you see this code phrase that Yeshua uses a lot, what he's talking about is either one of two things. Are you engaged in idolatry, which Israel has been from time to time, quite heavily, or is your heart so hard that you have basically lost the ability to hear and respond to the word of God? So there's the setup. And we've got uh, the church at Ephesus in Revelation. We've got the parable of the sower. And now what I want to do is I want to go into the book of Ephesians. I will tell you up front a couple of things about the church at Ephesus. As, we, as I said earlier, it no longer exists. Major, major city in Adriana at the time. A very big city. It's also the last place that Paul was before he got clapped into jail and sent to Rome. Remember, he... He goes, as he's coming back to Israel, the last place he stops is Ephesus. And it's fairly apparent that there's a big church there because the elders all gather to send him off and they constitute a crowd. So it's a big place. And what we'll see as we go through the book of Ephesians is there's a lot of emphasis on love. He's going to emphasize over and over again love. And I'm suggesting to you that what he's doing is he's prefiguring what Yeshua is going to say in the book of Revelation, where he's going to say to these guys, you got all the knowledge, but you don't have any love. And, And the other thing is, Paul clearly likes these folks. And as I say, it's the last place he jumped off before he went back to the land, Um, they clearly like him, he likes them, and that's natural, because think about Paul's personality. 
Paul is really into the word and really into doctrine and he really likes to get into the nitty gritty of stuff. And so it's very natural that Paul and the church at Ephesus would have kind of a, an affinity for each other because they're both interested in the same stuff. And so what Paul is doing is talking to people he loves here and he's trying to lead them in a way that's going to avoid the rebuke that a Yeshua is going to eventually give. And of course it doesn't work because Yeshua does have to give that rebuke. So, God willing, we'll get through chapter 1 tonight. Paul, an apostle of Messiah Yeshua, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Messiah Yeshua, grace to you and grace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua Messiah. So, salutation. All right, now we're going to go through a bunch of tangly stuff, and we're probably going to wind up hanging up here a little bit because there's a bunch of stuff I want to talk about. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua Messiah, who has blessed us in Messiah with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Who is who here? Who's the antecedent of the pronoun? Father. Okay, that's what I say. Paul has, you know, he, he will go along for, you know, stringing clauses together, and you got to figure out who the antecedent of the pronoun is, or a lot of this stuff doesn't make any sense. So, blessed be God, the God and Father, who has blessed us in Messiah with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So the one who has done the blessing is the Father. Even as he, the Father, chose in him, the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is the first place we've got to stop. Actually, let me go on to verse 5 and then we'll come back. So, should be holy and blameless before him, then in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Messiah Yeshua, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So, a couple of things here. And, and there's an alternative translation to that, by the way. Back up here where it says, holy and blameless before him, period, in love he predestined us, or it could read, or before him in love, comma, having predestined us. The sense is the same, it's just the grammar is a little different. So let's talk about predestination. The word there in Greek is Strong's number 4309, pro-orzio, and I am not a Greek speaker, but one of the things that I did is I started by looking up, at you know, computers are wonderful things, Predestination doesn't exist in the Old Testament. That is an entirely New Testament concept. Now, what you do have in the Old Testament, which I think serves, is if you go to, for example, Psalm 139, 139.16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So what it says is, you saw me before I was in mommy's belly, and you saw the days of my life before they were formed. And that gives the idea of, you knew what was going to happen to me before it happened. Go to Isaiah 48.5, and here it says, I, meaning God, I declare them to you from of old before they came to pass I announced them to you 
lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. So what God is saying is, I told you ahead of time what was going to happen, so you would not be able to say that your idols had caused them to happen. So again, this idea of God knowing what's going to happen before it happens. Having said that, the closest thing to predestination that I could find in the Old Testament, and it may be there, I just may not be able to find it. Okay? I'm not saying I'm, this is definitive. I'm simply saying I tried to track it down, and what I did is I first off looked up this uh, 4309, the Greek word for predestination. I got the Septuagint with strong numbers, and that word does not appear in the Septuagint. In other words, the translators of the Old Testament into Greek 200 years before the birth of Christ did not see fit to use that word in translating the Old Testament. So then, as I say, I started looking for things that looked like they might be predestination, and these are the ones I found. The closest one I found is Jeremiah 1. And in verse 5, pick it up at 4, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. That's the closest thing I could find to anything that sounded like predestination in the Old Testament. So I am suspicious of predestination simply because I'm not a Calvinist. If I were a Calvinist, I would be right here, and this would be one of my proof texts. See, right there, it says predestination. I'm not a Calvinist. Let me give you an alternative sense of Ephesians in light of what I have just read in the Old Testament. So now, back in chapter 1-4 of Ephesians, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for the adoption of son through Messiah Yeshua. All right, now, there's two ways you can look at that. Way number one is he said, I know you, Catherine, and you are going to be an inheritor and a son, daughter, just like Yeshua is, you. The other way that can be met is I am setting up my ecclesia, and the members of that ecclesia are going to be adopted as sons. It isn't saying anything about whether Catherine will be a member of that or not. It is simply saying that the body of Messiah is going to be fellow heirs with Christ. Doesn't say anything specific. And since he's writing to Ephesians who are in the, in the ecclesia, who have chosen to be disciples of Messiah, then everybody that is being addressed in this letter qualifies. Paul is confusing. He is. And the only person in Scripture who uses the word predestined is Paul. He uses it in Romans, and he uses it here in Ephesians, twice in each book. Peter comes close. He doesn't use the word predestined, but he has a phrase that sort of gives the same idea. And what I'm suggesting to you that a more reasonable interpretation is, because if you have predestination, you have no free will. And the rabbis, God bless them, have a saying that everything is under the control of heaven except the fear of heaven. Which is to say that God will order the events in your life to make things happen, but the thing he will not do is cause you to come to him. 
In other words, you have a choice as to whether you're going to be a lost sheep or you're going to be a sheep of the fold, and he won't make that choice for you. Now, as you go out, he may surround you with wolves and scare you back. I mean, he may do all sorts of stuff to move you in a direction that he wants you to move, but he won't make that decision for you. That's the rabbinic understanding. I do not find it credible that Paul has invented a doctrine of predestination when such does not exist anywhere else. So what I'm suggesting to you is the reading here should be that the predestination part is I am going to set up my ecclesia, my body, and those that come into that body are going to be fellow heirs. So anyway, the, the fact that he is writing to, to you who are predestined, I'm suggesting that everybody that's reading this letter is a believer, is a member of the body, and the body is what is predestined, quote unquote, to be fellow heirs. You don't have to believe it. If you want to believe in predestination, God bless you, we'll still do lunch. It's okay. But I don't. I don't. Verse 7 in Ephesians. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, that he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. By the way, why is Paul, do you suppose, emphasizing grace here? First, right out of the box. In, in other words, if, if my assertion is correct, that the problem with this church is that they're really, really, really good at studying, but they aren't really, really good at love, then one of the things that he would emphasize is, yeah, you guys are selected. Yeah, you guys are in. Yeah, God loves you. But he does that according to his grace. And he'll emphasize that here. This is not because you guys are the best Torah scholars on the planet. So it, again, it's, it, it's a little subtle. He'll get more direct later on in the letter. But the idea here is he's sort of softening them up and getting them used to the idea that just because they're really hot Torah scholars doesn't cut any ice with God. I mean, it's certainly a good thing, but that's not what, why he saved you. Verse 9. Actually, this is a continuation of a sentence, so let's back up. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Messiah, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Everybody got that? So, again, what he's talking about here, we have redemption, and we got it through his blood. But that redemption is set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Fullness of time being into the age, I think so, to unite all things in him. So the reason you were saved is because of a plan that he had for the end of the age to unite all things in heaven and on earth. Verse 11. In him, who him? I think this is Messiah. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Messiah might be to the praise of his glory. That's all one sentence. So, 
In the Messiah, we have obtained an inheritance. An inheritance is what? Land. But the idea here is land, so what are we talking about? The new heaven and the earth, the world to come. Talking about the resurrection. So what he's saying is, in the Messiah, we have an inheritance in the world to come, after the resurrection, and we who are the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. So again, what he's talking about on this predestination, we have an inheritance being predestined, and I am again taking predestined in the same sense that I took it before. If you are a member of the ecclesia, if you believe in Messiah and he has purchased you with his blood, then you fall into the category of those who are going to have an inheritance. He doesn't predestine you, Suzanne, to come in, but if you do come in, everybody who comes in gets an inheritance, and that is predestined. Verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Again, we've talked about that before. Uh, it is my assertion that we are not living under the new covenant. What's the new covenant? Israel is brought back. Israel and Judah are reunited. The Torah is written on their heart, and they are in their land. Now, whether that their land is the millennial kingdom or their land is the new heaven and the new earth, that one's up for grabs and you could go either way. But that's the definition of the new covenant. We are not all redeemed. We are not living in the land. At least most of Israel is not living in the land. So all of those things don't happen. What you have in the, new, in the Holy Spirit is a claim check. You have a marker which says that you have a place, you have an inheritance, you're going to be there. That's your assurance that when all this comes down and Israel is then regathered and you come in, that you've got a place of your own. You don't have it yet. And as Ray likes to describe, who's a real estate, used to be a real estate guy, it's like you've signed the contract, but you have not closed and taken possession. And when you close and take possession is when you're living under the new covenant. Now you're living under the current covenant, which is the Torah. In my translation, 14 and 15 are a paragraph break. And I'm not going to start that paragraph, which is a different thought, because I won't get through the end of it in the next seven minutes. Would somebody like to close in prayer? Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this study and would like to hear more, go to www.crimsonthread.com. There you'll find this study in its entirety, as well as other resources for studying the scriptures from a messianic perspective. Thank you and shalom.